I just want to say, welcome to Victorville. This is a typical Sunday morning in February in Victorville. We have been transported there this morning. I am so glad to see you. So glad to see you guys online. Thanks for joining us. And can we do this? Can we thank our production team, our worship team, Steve up here hosting with all the technical things. They're doing such a great job in the middle of a lot of crazy. But hey, you're here in the breeze and you're crazy. So it's all good. We're all just a bunch of nuts together. So it's all working out. So I'm so glad you came today. It just makes my heart happy to see people who say, you know what? Rain, well, I wouldn't say rain or shine, but wind or no wind, we're going to be out here and we just want to keep loving the Lord, joining together as his people. And I have some updates for you kind of about that in just a second. But you join us as we're continuing a series in the book of John called Beckon, the idea of when Jesus invites people close. If you have a Bible, you can make your way to John chapter 3. If you have your phone, you can open up our app and on that go to resources and then you'll see sermon notes with today's date of uh, February the 14th. Happy Valentine's Day to you. And it would just make sense that we would talk about the love of God on Valentine's. So we're gonna get there in just a minute. Let me give you a couple updates we're real excited about. And, um, and guys, what we'll do, uh, Jim, as far as even my video, if it's not gonna work, no problem. I'll skip over that and then we'll just keep tracking with slides, okay? Um, take a look at this slide. This last week in my midweek video, we were able to share with some great work from our from Jared Mantanya, working with a lot of things with our Helps Fund and Mindy Sames in our comm department, came up with basically aligning a page on our website that's all about resources and ways that we want to minister to you and the people in your world. It's just called Trinity Cares. And it's got, if you look here at the very bottom of the front page, right at the bottom, it says need help. And there's an orange button that says resources. If you click on that, you just get an array of the different things we have in motion and places and things that we will begin to add to that. Of If you need help, this is a real easy way to access that and find out what's available. And it's just been exciting in this season. We have a blood drive coming up in March. Our food pantry is kind of back in motion on Thursdays again, among other ways that we're just trying to help meet needs in our church family and in our community. If there's someone in your relational world that needs help, pass that on to them. Tell them just go to Trinity, go to my church's website at the bottom of the first page. It says need help, resources, click on that and you'll see some things that are available. So we wanna make that available to you, our church family and available to our community. Another thing I wanted you to know, we are working on a plan for creating the option to begin meeting indoors again. It is a few weeks too late. I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> this morning would have been awesome, but just know we're working on it and I will be able to share with you more details in the next week or so. So just know we're working on it. We will, when we have a more developed, I hate just sharing parts of information, so we'll share more, but just know it is in motion and we're working on it and we'll keep you up to date. Today, what we do is we pick up, last week we were talking about Jesus' conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And we talked a lot about some things that Jesus was just confounded by. Nicodemus, why don't, the things I'm alluding to are things you should know. They're things from the former covenant, from the 39 books and what we call our Old Testament. And in it, I'm just alluding to things that are there and present, Let just connect the dots. 
The idea of being born again, the idea of being born from above, the idea of being born of water and of the spirit. And so in that conversation, we're gonna pick up the end of the conversation today. And in doing so, on the heels of that conversation, we're gonna see the most well-known and famous verse in all the Bible, and I think for great reason. It is great that we know John 3:16. But what we're gonna talk about is, in order to understand really the, the breadth of what John 3:16 is about, we have to look at a very obscure passage from the book of Numbers. So here's our now what statement today. Express gratitude for God's love and light that reached you when you were still condemned. Express gratitude for God's love and light that reached you when you were still condemned. Number one in your notes, Jesus's death on the cross provides life for those who believe in him. Jesus's death on the cross provides life for those who believe in him. We're in John chapter three, beginning in verse 14. It says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So let's pick up the conversation. Let's think about where we left off. Jesus is having this conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is really struggling to understand what Jesus is talking about. And he's connecting dots back to the former covenant about the idea of being born anew, born afresh. And what we talked about is the real challenge for Nicodemus was really, I don't even know so much the idea that he couldn't connect the theology. It was connecting his, what he had put his trust in. But Jesus, you don't understand. I deserve to be in the kingdom because I'm a Jew. I deserve to be in the kingdom because I'm at the top of the religious pecking order. I'm a Pharisee in the Sanhedrin. I belong there. You're telling me all of that doesn't count and I have to start over? I think that's the emotion he was expressing. I can't get my heart around that idea. It's not so much my head. I don't want to believe this. That's, that's everything I've been putting my faith in. You're telling me won't count to get into the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you're exactly right. In your notes, Nicodemus's recurring question to Jesus was how can this be when what he should have been asking was how can I be born again? He didn't need to keep wondering about all the mechanisms of spiritual rebirth. He just need to ask the question, what do I need to do with this? How do I respond appropriately? So continuing in this conversation, we pick up what Jesus says directly after describing himself. We looked at it last week. He describes himself as the son of man, a reference to Daniel chapter seven, coming with authority coming with the one who really does own, who does give leadership to the kingdom. It's his kingdom. And then, so he continues by what we just read, making a very strange comparison. Just as the snake, so the son of man. What? What on God's green earth is he talking about? That reference would be lost on many of us, but remember who he's talking to. And we'll make a big deal about this in a couple weeks. He's talking to someone who knows the Torah, the first five books of, the, of our Bible, backwards and forwards. He knows the book of Numbers by heart. And he knows exactly what Jesus is referring to. Let me catch the rest of us up. From Numbers chapter 21, verse four, this is what he's referring to. They, the people of Israel, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. That was the whole point. They were going around Edom because of the threat of warfare. 
But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They were receiving manna and they're just like, this is garbage, we're over it. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Don't just read over that. Jesus sent snakes as a mechanism of judgment. They bit people and people died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord, pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. <clears throat> then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. What? That seems a little bit, what? This is crazy. What are we even talking about? Uh, when I taught this passage, I had the privilege of speaking on this passage to our high school students about three years ago. This is the picture I used the day that I was talking to them. I'm not gonna use it today, but I just wanted you to know that's what I shared with them. This is a weird, the Numbers 21 passage, a weird and disturbing and even idolatrous sounding passage. It doesn't sound like anything that you would expect to find in your Bible related to, and God said, make an idol. But that's what we just read. So let's break it down. Let's look at a few things. Number one, first of all, you need to know, this is the third time God has sent judgment among a grumbling group of people in the book of Numbers. The people marched all the way up to the edge of the promised land. God said, go get it. They said, no, thank you. And as a result, God kept bringing things of judgment, not just even because of their lack of faith, but because of their grumbling attitude. They were just over it. These judgments were all handed down because they refused to listen to God and refused to listen to his leader named Moses. Look in your notes. It's significant to stop and think that grumbling was the basis for God's judgment of his people and to realize that his warnings against grumbling continue for us today. Look at a couple of references from 1 Corinthians 10, speaking directly of this account. Verse six, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse nine, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel, another account of God's wrath. Philippians chapter two, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Can I just say this? In the pandemic, it has been easy to become a grumbler myself included. It is hard to not develop a bad attitude and to see the world through the lens of everyone is limiting me. Everyone's out to make my life more difficult. I'm just so over it. Can I just say, so I'm saying, I get it. And I've been in seasons of that over this last year as well. Can I just say this? The Bible speaks clearly. It's not the posture of God's people to be grumblers. 
It's just important for us to be reminded of that today and not just chalk it up to, well, the pandemic's hard. The pandemic is hard, but that's not the way that we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Second, once the people recognize their sin and the impending consequences, back to our story, they run to Moses and ask him to intercede on their behalf. I want you to note this, that they had a recognition that the people's problem was not just a snake problem. Moses, tell God to stop sending snakes. They recognize, Moses, we've sinned. Moses, we have transgressed against Yahweh and against you, his leader. We have failed. Ask God to forgive us. And that's important that they understood they had a sin problem. Third, God instructs Moses to do something so odd for us when we read it in light of all the things that God has said in his word forbidding idols. He directs Moses to make an idol and to instruct the people to look upon it. And when they look, they're healed. That's the kind of stuff that pagan nations were doing. If we build this idol and if we bow down, something good's going to happen to us. It seems so disconnected and so incongruous with everything else we know in the Old Testament. But I want you to hear this quote. This comes from Wearsby. He says, in the camp of Israel... The solution to, quote, the serpent problem was not in killing the serpents or making medicine or pretending they were not there or passing anti-serpent laws or climbing the pole. None of these things were the way. Watch. The answer was in looking by faith at the uplifted servant serpent. My point is this. This seems to go against so many commands that God gives in so many other places. And I will tell you, and looking over the Old Testament, I can't give you another example of a time when God does something like this. But I do want you to note this. When God says to Moses, put a snake upon a pole, the people look on it. Notice what he doesn't say. Don't make an idol and start worshiping it or sacrificing to it. He just says, look upon it. Look upon it and in faith. When you get bit by a venomous snake and you've watched your friends and family members die from the same thing, I'm telling you, I'm running after some kind of anti-venom. I'm running to a doctor. I'm trying to do anything to save myself. Looking at a serpent on a pole doesn't sound like a great way to medicate that problem. It was an issue of faith. God says, I'm going to ask you to do something really different. But the response I'm looking for from people is faith and trust. Because the last time I checked, looking at a bronze serpent on a pole doesn't save anyone from anything. But in this case, it did because God said it would. I have a hunch. I know that God could have chosen any method at all, both to judge his people and to heal them, right? There's no need he had to use snakes. And there's surely no need he had to use a snake on a pole for them to look at. So he could have done it in a myriad of different ways. But I wonder, track with this for a second, I wonder if he chose this method not so much for the people then, but for Nicodemus. Literally thousands of years later, sitting with Jesus at night and talking about things that he could not have a frame of reference for, just so Jesus could say, just like the snake, so it will be with the Son of Man. When I am raised up and people would look on me, not in some sort of religious hoop jumping, but look on me in faith, 
they will be healed of their sin and granted life, not just life to keep living, but eternal life. Nicodemus would have, been, would have been familiar with the idea of the concept of someone, especially the suffering servant, being lifted up from Isaiah 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus was appealing to things that Nicodemus knew and he was connecting dots for him. And by the way, just a tangential point, I've done my homework. I know that this symbol doesn't come from this story. It comes from a Greek God named Asclepius, but it screams like it could have come from the book of Numbers, from this account in chapter 21. Because what does this communicate? This is a universal sign for medical healing. So fascinating to me of what we're looking at. You see, Jesus uses this narrative from Numbers 21, known to Nicodemus, to forecast that the serpent on the pole would be reimagined as himself on the cross. He is absolutely making that connection. And look at the way that Jesus connects this dot for Nicodemus and for us, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. We're gonna see that idea throughout our time today, the need to faith the need to believe, right? To have this, this idea of trust and confidence in who Jesus is. We're gonna see the need to do that. And it's not the first time we've been introduced to it. All the way back in John 1, all the way back in December when we were teaching through the first 18 verses, we saw this mega theme back then. John 1, 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, watch, to all who faithed, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Number two in your notes, love was the motivation that moved God to send his son to save condemned people. Love was the motivation that moved God to send his son to save condemned people. Verses that you know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, to rescue the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe what stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the most recognizable scripture reference on the planet because of signs like these that you've been to sporting events or you've watched on TV. And I would say for good reason. In 26 words, this verse encapsulates the gospel like nothing else in all of scripture. And it does it so well. That's why it was so fun. I know that we didn't have the words available when we were singing it, but if you could just listen to the band today, sing these words, for God so loved the world. That's such a great thing to keep recounting and keep singing. And this verse contains the greatest promise of all that if we would look to Jesus in faith, believing in what he accomplished, we would not perish but have eternal life. It's important to note the speaker 
often we have said, and, and often we have in our, our, our Bibles, kind of a quote, red letter edition. So what parts include kind of the words of Jesus? I think that's good to know. I don't think it makes the, the other words less important. It's all scripture. But nonetheless, if you look in your Bible, you'll note we've typically ascribed John 3, 16, Jesus said, for God so loved. But when you look in your Bible, you'll note it's not read. This is the writer of the book. This is John. And we've said it before, John will often give commentary throughout this gospel where the narrative will be there. He's recounting the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. And then he'll pull away and say, let me fill in some blanks for you. And it's in that context that we find John 3.16. This powerful gospel truth about why the son's arrival showed us both the love of the father as well as meeting the most very basic need that we have of being saved from being condemned. I want you to note this. Note the fact of what we've just done. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, just as the snake was raised, so the son of man will be raised and those who look on him in faith will be saved. He's making this connection, John is, where he's saying, for God so loved the world in this same way. Catch the connection. Jesus is the anti-venom to a world who's been snake bit with sin. That connection is there and it's meant to be there. I really appreciate Sherry Blakey had this sign made for me this week. And this is the sign, right, that you see everywhere. It's awesome. I love that this sign is at all kinds of games. But I want you to think this is really what should go on the backside. Right? Jesus is the anti-venom. And I know that doesn't make sense if you don't understand what's gone on just before it. But we do now. We do know the narrative from Numbers 21. We do know that there is this connection that Jesus is making. And the interesting thing is that connection has been there all along in the simple English word, so. So. For God so loved the world. This English word is translated from a Greek word, hautos. And hautos simply means this, in this way, referring to what precedes or follows. Hautos means it's a comparison word. In the same way that this is, so is this. Now we have generally read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world with the intensity idea of so. And he did so love the world. We're gonna talk about the kind of love God has for the world in just a moment. But I don't think that this word is intended to talk about the intensity of God's love as much as it's meant to talk about the comparison of God's love. In the same way that God loved snake-bitten Israelites in the desert who were bound on death, so in the same way God loved the world. A world that stood condemned because of the reality of sin. The comparison is the concept in the same way. Look in your notes. So now when you think about the greatest promise communicated in the Bible, know that it's a reference to a snake bit world who desperately needs what God's amazing love provided his son's substitutionary atoning death 
for us, for our sin. Note the specific kind of love that God has. He has this agape love. We've talked about that word a lot lately. It's this selfless, not expecting anything in return, willing the good of another at the expense of myself kind of love. By the way, that's the kind of love that your Valentine needs. I know that Valentine's Day is a whole lot about romantic love, but the reality is God loves us with a love that loved us when we were condemned, that loved us when we were sinful, that loved us not when we loved him back, but loved us as is. That's the amazing kind of love. And when it comes to God's love for you, I don't know anyone who says it better than C.S. Lewis. Listen to this quote. He, God, creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated torture of back and arms that is, as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is quote a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. And I so appreciated in our pre-time this morning as a production team, worship team, everything that we talk about, Chris Dowdy made a great point about the importance and Nicodemus needed to hear this. God doesn't just love religious Jews. God doesn't just love the upper crust of those who are trying to appease him. God so loved the world. God so loved every single one of us. In your notes, this love that God has is for the whole world, for everyone in our relational worlds. And we have the privilege of letting them know who has rescued us. There isn't a single person you interact with that God doesn't immensely love, a love that sent Jesus to the cross. No one you meet that doesn't fall under that category. John notes that the giving of God's son will keep those who look upon him in faith from perishing. That word means to fully destroy, cutting off entirely. It implies permanent destruction. It's a big word. So those who believe in him will not perish, will not be cut off. John makes it clear that Jesus' purpose in coming to a snake-bit people was not to further condemn them, but to rescue them. But he also makes it clear that the world, that these snake-bit people are condemned already. He says this uh, even before this was true, before he even arrived to save them. I love these words from Carson. This is what he says. The son of man came into an already lost and condemned world. He did not come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world for that is the nature of quote, the world from John 1, 9 in order to save some. That not all of the world will be saved is made perfectly clear by the next verses. Verses we're gonna look at next. But God's purpose in the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation to it. That is why Jesus is later called the Savior of the world, rightly so. We've said it before in your notes, the good news becomes the great news when you understand the bad news. 
And I want to be crystal clear today. If you're here today and, and this idea of Jesus is someone that you have heard about, this idea of Jesus is, is some sort of religious icon that you're aware of, but you've never made a decision to respond in faith like the snake was on the pole, right? That doesn't seem like that's the logical way you get healed from a snake bite to look upon it in faith, but it's how God worked. The fact that Jesus died a gruesome death 2,000 years ago, how in the world does that translate to helping you? I don't totally understand it, but God says that's the mode, that's the pathway to rescue. That's the pathway of being healed and having eternal life rather than being condemned. And the Bible makes it clear in this passage and the next one we're gonna read that we stand condemned already. You don't have to go out of your way to be condemned by God. You arrive that way as a sinner in a sinful world and that is simply your state, my state as is. It's not about degrees of sinfulness that God condemned those who were really bad and that we all fall under, but instead we all fall under his righteous wrath because we are by nature and by choice sinful. Finally, number three today, in order to respond to Jesus, we must be willing to step into the light of his truth. In order to respond to Jesus, we must be willing to step into the light of his truth. Chapter three, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly by that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This last part of our passage today is extremely crucial for clarifying and understanding what Nicodemus should have been asking. Rather than continue to ask, what do I, how can this be? It keeps coming back to, if there's a verdict, that means there needs to be a response. There's truth. There's this sense of, there has been a statement made, now we need to deal. John writes that this verdict has been given. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word, crisis crisis. In this case, it means a negative verdict which condemns the nature of the sin, not just the action, the nature of the sin that brings it on. So there's clear judgment that has been made. Light has come into the world, but we rejected it because we prefer darkness. And the interesting thing is that sounds like something we've already read from John chapter 1. Another one of those mega themes was the idea of light from chapter one, verse nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was, not, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So we've already had this idea of forecast from the very beginning of John's gospel. The light was gonna come into the world, but people were gonna reject it. I don't want anything to do with that. John goes on to note that those who keep on practicing evil, that's what that Greek word, it's a present active participle, it's ongoing action. They hate and avoid the light and they choose, they will not come into it lest their deeds be exposed. That word exposed means what you think it means, to convince with solid, compelling evidence. They'll be seen for who and what they are, so instead, shrinking back in the shadows. 
see this characterization of sinful humanity in John 3. It demonstrates a willful choice. I want you to catch that. This is not something subtle. This is not something passive. There's a willful choice to stay out of the light and into the shade, into the darkness. To want to remain hidden and secret in the dark, lest the reality of the truth and actions will be made aware to God and others. And the thing they're missing, God's already aware. Darkness is not dark to God. We cannot hide from him. But there exists an attempt to remain in hiding so they don't have to deal with their true fallenness. And the interesting thing is that goes all the way back to the beginning, right? Adam and Eve, clearly they knowingly violated God's decree of not to eat from this particular tree. And what was their reaction once they did? They went and hid themselves. I love God's graciousness. He comes into the garden. Hey, where are you guys? As though he didn't know. But that's their reaction then. And the interesting thing is that's been our natural go-to ever since. We hide in shame. We hide in fear. And we don't want to have to deal with the reality. But I want you to watch this. The one who lives by the truth. For the one who has set aside pride and shame and is willing to admit their sin and sinful actions. They come into the light and they're seen for who they are. I love this comment by Merrill Tenney, and this is what he said. I want you to catch this because so many times we give the wrong impression or people get the wrong impression that people who are following Jesus are somehow better. We're not better at all. All we've done is say, I recognize the truth of my sinfulness. I'm going to stop trying to hide and I'm simply going to walk into the light. I'm going to deal with reality. Tenney puts it this way. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever does not lie in the guilt or innocence of either. It lies in the different attitudes they take towards the light. The unbeliever shrinks from the light because it exposes his sin. The believer willingly comes into the light so that his real motives may be revealed. Catch that today. And if you're here and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. And one of the reasons why is because you just think, I can't even be like these people who are Christians. They seem to have their act together. They seem to be so good. Can I just tell you, you don't know us well enough. It's not true. But secondly, the idea is if, if you are, are, are standing back saying, I'm not good enough for God, no one is. No one started with that sense of God. Now I'm acceptable to you because of all these things I've done and how together my life is. None of us came to Jesus that way. That's the only difference is the ability to say, I walk into the light, I recognize my shame. I recognize my guilt and I'm done hiding. I present myself to God the way God already knows I am. And that is the difference maker. That's what John 3 is teaching us. For those who practice the truth and come into the light, they understand that their actions will be seen by God for what they are. And because they know that they were previously, watch this, they know they were previously condemned. There's a deep awareness of our own sinfulness and have fallen short of God's glory, but that God is full of love and mercy. We're aware of our fallenness, but we're also aware of an incredibly loving God, a God who is incredibly merciful, a God who's incredibly forgiving, like none you've ever interacted with before. 
and we come to that God, we don't cower in fear of judgment or shame because that has been placed upon Jesus at the cross, paid in full. That's where we put our faith. We look upon him in faith, just like the Israelites looked upon a snake on a pole. That sounds so weird to say it that way. Anyways, that's what they did. They are simply aware that because God is light, he has been aware of their choices and their actions all along. And rather than pretend that he doesn't know or shrink back due to the weight of their shame, watch, they approach him. They step into the light. They don't flaunt their failures, but they recognize that God both sees and forgives what has been accomplished because of what has been accomplished by Jesus. I love this verse from John's other letter, 1 John 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We can't live in that false, fake world. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Watch this. Those condemned by the venom of sin that runs through their blood need only look to Jesus for healing and life, eternal life. That is where it's found. Rather than through efforts to save oneself like ethnic privilege and religiosity like Nicodemus had tried. So this week, our takeaway, what we do with this, there's so many great ways we can do this all week long, express gratitude for God's love and light that reached you while you were still condemned. Let me pray. Father God, on this blustery day in February, this Valentine's Day, we've gathered together both on lawn and online to rally around the incredibly great news of the gospel. The fact that you no longer hold people's sins against them because of what you accomplished at the cross through Jesus. And we read it from the book of John we read of Jesus making this comparison and the people of Israel in the midst of being snake bit didn't need to figure out how to atone for themselves. They only need look upon the snake and were healed in faith. Jesus, thank you for becoming our condemnation on the cross and we need only look upon you in faith and indeed we have life, not just even life for the rest of this life, but God, eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. It is the best story we've ever heard and some think it's too good to be true. If you're here today with us online or online and you've never responded to the great news of the gospel and maybe because of that, Todd, you don't know how messed up I am. Todd, you don't know what I've done and I'm gonna tell you I don't. But God does, remember we said, you've been living in the darkness, he's seen it all. But even in your mess, as you stand condemned, the Bible brings this great news of the gospel that God has forgiven you. God's love for you made a way for you to be right with him. Not because you're gonna try harder, not because you're gonna clean yourself up, because of what Jesus, the righteous atoning sacrifice for sin has already done. So you respond to him by A, admitting what we've talked about today. You're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. 
put your faith, your confidence, your trust in what Jesus has done and what he says about you, that you will be saved when you put your trust in him. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm gonna stop trying to clean myself up my way. I'm just gonna come to you as is. I'm gonna step into the light. And in doing so, I recognize I need you and I wanna live my life following you. You can make that decision right here before you leave this service. And my prayer is that you wouldn't let another moment pass until you do. Father, this week, would we live in this great expression of gratitude that indeed you brought your love, your light into our world when we stood condemned already. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.